Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trickhauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. In any other year, outsiders might view Scandinavia, that is, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, as relatively similar. But the coronavirus pandemic has revealed how different they really are. Norway, for example, has consistently been near the top of Bloomberg's COVID resilience ranking, while Sweden has made headlines for its unique and ultimately deadly approach to the pandemic. And in December 2020, for the first time since 1954, the border between Norway and Sweden was closed. Meanwhile, although Denmark has vaccinations well underway, the country has also faced protests against its lockdown, including burning of an effigy of the prime minister, a mink scandal, and now widespread cases of the coronavirus mutation. Almost a year into the pandemic, I'm talking to two researchers about how the Nordic countries' responses to this crisis have differed and what we can learn. Amy Klotworthy is assistant professor at the Interdisciplinary Center for Healthy Aging at the University of Copenhagen, where she teaches and conducts research on how health and social policies targeting older people influence the sociocultural dynamics of later life. With an emphasis on everyday health practices, her research also investigates how the Danish healthcare sector, hospitals, and municipal authorities can improve professional practices by recognizing the complexity of older people's life histories, as well as the individual needs and priorities they express in their personal narratives. Therese Sefton is a research assistant at PRIO. She graduated from the Peace and Conflict Studies Master's Program at the University of Oslo. Her current research focus is on Sweden and Norway and Nordic cooperation during and in the aftermath of the COVID-19 crisis. She is specifically interested in the historical and contemporary relationship between Sweden and Norway and Nordic cooperation in general. Welcome, Therese and Amy. I'm really glad to have the two of you here today. We're going to be talking about coronavirus again. This has been a very um, recurring topic on the podcast, and I guess it's understandable. Um, there's so many facets of, of the pandemic that we can discuss in the context of peace and conflict and security and um, so many other things. But I wanted to talk to the two of you together because you're going to offer some kind of different perspectives on uh, the way that the pandemic has been has uh, been responded to in the Nordic countries. Um, and right now you're working together on a paper with some other Scandinavian researchers comparing uh, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. So, Therese, I'm wondering if you can start by just giving us a brief overview of the differing situations in Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, because I think a lot of people outside of this area of the world, and maybe even even in this area of the world, would see these countries as extremely similar. Um, of course, it's always a bit hilarious when people think, for example, that Norway is in Sweden. Sometimes I've gotten that question back in the U.S. Um, <laughs> I, I often get uh, the fact that Denmark is in the Netherlands. They think I speak Dutch. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, I lived in Switzerland and people asked me if I spoke Swedish. So... Um, Maybe that says more about the U.S. than anything else. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah, but what, but, uh, what you both yes. say right now is is very interesting because it 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 just uh, goes to show that that uh, the pandemic has demonstrated that we are not as similar as as we tend to believe, both inside 
the Nordic and Scandinavian region in particular, but also in, in Europe and, and, and the Western world in general. So it's yeah, that's really right. Interesting. But to, to start us off, um, uh, despite these uh, similarities, uh, the, the Nordic countries are, as you said, generally perceived and see themselves as harmonious and egalitarian countries with uh, expansive social security and healthcare schemes and humane traditions for especially care and, uh, and uh, confinement that we will look deeper into too in our paper. And uh, even if Sweden as per today have implemented measures much similar to those that were in effect in Norway and Denmark during the summer and early fall, Sweden's crisis management has been diametrically different from Norway and, and Denmark and Finland, which, uh, given the perceived similarities, have surprised observers, analysts around the world and have resulted in very different experiences of uh, the pandemic for both healthcare personnel, politicians and the civil society in general. And it's it's surprising to me that Sweden actually recently passed 11,000 deaths of or with COVID-19, uh, which is around four times more than Norway and Denmark combined. And, and uh, I mean, th this is really also demonstrated through the different experiences uh, of the pandemic, which is evident within the hospitals who treat the patients with COVID-19, uh, in addition to all those who must receive treatment, medical staff in areas with high levels of infections are severely affected, both mentally and physically. Uh, but on the other hand, we also have a similarity that has been that the virus has spread to nursing homes and to people with home care in all countries. The difference with Sweden in, in the Nordic uh, region was that uh, the societal spread of the virus have been very uh, detriment detrimental and, and uh, of importance because that in itself has made it challenging to effectively stop uh, further spread to risk groups uh, via home care and in nursing homes. Uh, and 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 this is also very important to know that uh, care of old people has in a sense, and especially in Sweden, been the Cinderella of the welfare state. It's something that's been down-prioritized all the time. And, and the government and the, the, the authorities that are responsible for, for crisis management, but also for care of old people, and provision of, of welfare services have been very aware that the state of nursing homes and home care has been very bad in Sweden for a while now. So the two of you, I think, have very interesting perspectives on this because, Tedis, you are originally from Sweden, but you've lived in Norway for a very long time. And Amy, you're from the US and you've lived in Denmark for a very long time. Um, and that's one of the, I think, advantages uh, that you have when you're when you're researching this situation is your positionality. So I'm wondering if you could 
talk briefly about these three terms that we get thrown around a lot in the news. So in Norway, this is dugnad, uh, and then we have samfunsin and folkvet. Um, and since we do have an international audience, we definitely need to to define these things. But I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on on these three terms and how they interact with the the policies of these three countries. Um, Amy, maybe you want to start. Yeah, thanks. I'm not going to be able to talk so much about uh, the Norwegian and Swedish uh, terms. I'll, I'll leave that to Therese. Uh, but in terms of Samfunsin in Denmark, it's really interesting. I've been doing a little bit of research into, I'm an ethnologist uh, by education. So I look at different situations uh, from a historical cultural standpoint. And so I started to look into this term Samfunsin and what it meant and where it came from. Uh, because these ideas that seem so popular in in uh, everyday conversation uh, have an origin story. And so I was interested in finding out a little bit more about that origin story. And what I realized um, was that the term started in 1939. It really came first, that was the first time it was noted in the Danish dictionaries. And it was a response after World War II, after World War I, excuse me, before World War II. And, and it was sort of the, the Danish prime minister's way of saying at that time between these two wars and as the Second World War was beginning to emerge in Europe, uh, that we need to stay together as a nation. We need to think about the greater good. And that's what Samfunsin it's a compound noun that gets at two different parts, samfun meaning society and sind meaning mind. So society mind would be a literal uh, translation of it. But the, the sense of it is more in terms of uh, community spirit and, and doing things beyond yourself for the greater good of your fellow uh, citizens. So that I think, um, and I in doing this little bit of research, uh, it came out that there have only been about 60 to 65 uses of the word Samfunsin since 1939. So since that very first time that, that it became used, uh, it's been very, very rarely used up until this current pandemic, when the current uh, Prime Minister Meta Fredriksson started using it uh, to talk about the corona crisis specifically. So it's gained this popularity, it's become part of the lexicon that we're using in our everyday world, and it refers specifically to the sense of doing the things that are right, that your government, that your co-citizens, that your family and friends expect uh, that will benefit everybody in the society as a whole. Mm. Therese, can you give us the Norwegian and Swedish sure. uh, versions of this? Sure. It, I mean, uh, Duke, not when I hear you talk about this, Amy, I... I, I feel that both uh, dugnad and and samfunsind are are very closely uh, related in in what they mean and and uh, I don't know when it was first used in Norway but uh, given that you say that uh, it it appeared first in 1949 and this was a period in time when when uh, the, the building of the welfare society was uh, not at a height, but were well on its way uh, with labor rights and 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 uh, social classes that stood together against the elite to build a society where we helped each other. It goes very well also with the Swedish development at the time in, in the interwar 
Sarah. But uh, to go back to dugnad, uh, dugnad is something you do as uh, a people within a nation, uh, a local society, a sports club or similar. It means uh, voluntary work carried out collectively. And uh, it is a concept that has been utilized by the Norwegian government uh, to mobilize the people now behind the Norwegian strategy and motivate them to accept the measures that have been implemented. And, and it was seen as necessary with a national dugnad to combat the spread of the virus. And, and, and the goal has been to stop it and eliminate it. And, and then everyone needs to, to get together and uh, in good community spirit for the greater good of the whole society. Uh, uh, so that's basically what, what dugnad is. We do this together. Uh, and everyone's everyone is sharing the burden of of the measures that have been uh, been implemented to more or less uh, in Sweden uh, the prime minister appealed to folkvet uh, very very early and folk it's uh, the people and vet is uh, knowledge so combined we often translate it to english as uh, common sense <laughs> uh, like the common sense of the people and it can be understood as I like to explain it as each individual's knowledge uh, to do the right thing and to understand what messages uh, the government uh, and experts send out what they imply like we have the level of knowledge and, and uh, education and understanding to to know what we need to do uh, on the individual level and accumulated this is this goes for the whole people uh, by uh, appealing to Folkvet uh, Stefan Löfven the, the Swedish prime minister underlined that Swedes don't need a state who dictates what they are to do uh, in late March he said that all of us as individuals must take our responsibility we cannot legislate and ban everything, but it's about common sense. It's about folkvet. So, so mm. he basically said that we know that all of you know what to do, but it, and that's very interesting because uh, recent research uh, from uh, Uslomet, for example, recently actually found that it's been very hard even in Norway to understand what our responsibilities are and that is with legislation and bans so it's uh, and given that the communication in sweden has been very uh very uh, double and it's been vague uh it's 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 interesting that they dared to appeal to 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 folkvet and 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 trust that each individual is is knows good enough what to do Amy, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I would, because I think uh, Therese has really raised a, a very important, interesting point, because a lot of the Scandinavian languages have similarities in their etymology. And, you know, we don't need to geek out over some of those uh, specifics, but just in terms of the word folkvet in Swedish, 
her explanation, Therese's explanation here, uh, is very, very similar to a Danish word for nuft. And it's usually used mm. in the sense of sund for nuft. And that means just healthy common sense. It's your, yeah, just really basic common sense. You make a decision, uh, you go shopping and get a bargain. Well, that's just common sense. It's sund for nuft. And those words and definition are very, very similar. But that term was never, ever used in Denmark in relation to the corona crisis, at least as far as I know. Uh, but but instead, this idea of Samfunsin sort of transcended the Sundfunuft idea and, and it moved beyond common sense to this sort of, well, we can't just trust our our citizens to make their own rational choices, we need to instead insist on this community spirit, on the greater good, that everybody going beyond themselves. And that seemed to be more of the government's approach to to handling things. And and I think that specific choice of words was uh, intentional on their part. Mm. And we do actually have the, the same, uh, yeah, words in Norwegian too. Um, oh, Therese, you have a comment. Yeah, but I, I, I totally agree. I was going to say what you just said about uh, it's it's interesting that uh, they appeal to uh, Samfunsind and Dugnad when both Norway and Sweden have words that, uh, that are similar to Folkvet. Uh, but it also shows that um, maybe historical experience of, of national hardships uh, plays an important role and an experience of, of crisis management, the, the occupation during the war. Um, uh, Norway was, a, was a, a poor country for a long time. And maybe these historical, historical experiences uh, plays an important part in, in how a people handle a crisis like this, it's easier to appeal to uh, community spirit when you have experienced hardships before. Absolutely. I fully agree with that. Yeah, and I think we have also seen this, for example, with um, with England, where people have kind of talked about like the war spirit, and, and that comes from the same sort of perspective. Um, and in Norway, when, when the pandemic started and the, the first lockdown happened, Dugnod was was everywhere. It was uh, very much a focus of the government's uh, press conferences and the prime minister's speeches. Um, But then in the last few months, I've seen several quite critical um, opinion pieces in newspapers basically saying that this is not a Dugnod because a Dugnod involves people helping to the extent that they can. So you don't necessarily expect um, everyone to contribute equally in a Dugnod because you you sort of pick up each other's burdens in a way. Um, So they were kind of criticizing that we can't all be expected to make the same effort. And and specifically that more fragile members of society or people who are maybe in a more precarious position are now being put in a very difficult position over a very long period of time. So that brings me to back to you, Amy, because you've highlighted that unity does not equal sameness, which is kind of what I'm getting at here, that just because we come together doesn't mean that we're all coming from the same place. So can you just explain a little bit about that and how it applies to the elderly in these countries and and how that fits in with your research? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's it's really important to to think about not just in terms of older people, um, but generally in terms of mar- marginalized populations and especially populations who don't have as much of a voice within the political discourse. Because I think that uh, older people were sort of targeted in the COVID-19 pandemic because obviously they had the greatest risk of uh of being infected with this virus. So they were were pointed out as this risk category of people. Um, and a lot of the, uh, the different public health precautions and measures that were put into place were targeted at protecting them. And that, of course, ended up being a form of age discrimination just because people are over 65, for example, that was the age the government uh, specifically focused on. Just because these people are over 65, they need to be protected. And a lot of people over 65 said, well, I'm healthier than some 40-year-olds, so why is it just based on age? And, And it's a valid point. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I think we didn't know enough about uh, the virus's transmission and and what specifically the um, the factors were that were involved in transmission and and how certain populations might become more infected. For example, now we know that men are infected at a much higher rate than women. We don't fully understand why there's that gender difference, but there is. Um, so I think we're learning a lot of lessons over time as we're reaching nearly a year with with this particular virus in our midst. But to get to the back to the question about unity and sameness, I think that the Nordic countries traditionally have had a sort of blanket policy, you could say, to handling uh, their populations. And I think Therese pointed to this in saying that, you know, uh, Back in in olden days, in the Scandinavian welfare states, the beginning of of that time, it was this movement from people being agricultural, working the land, being farmers, to suddenly all of these industrial uh, uh, changes were happening and people started coming into the cities. And I know that in Denmark, there was this huge transformation that happened at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century in terms of, of a sort of a mass migration from the the more rural areas of the country into the urban areas and and the cities like Copenhagen just completely exploded. And the government had to figure out how to manage all of these people. And at that time, well, we could say uh, the birth of the the welfare states in the, the beginning of the 20th century, populations were easier to handle. They were very homogenous. They were the same in a lot of ways. Um, there wasn't the type of globalization and immigration that we have today. So the government's approach uh, was basically to develop ideas of universal welfare services, healthcare services that would reach the greatest number of people. And it was built on these ideas of everybody is equal. We all have an equal say in the democratic process. We all have the same rights and obligations as citizens, that type of unity that then led to a concept like Samfunsind in the later part of the 30s. So all of that was happening. But I think that now as things have developed and as the welfare state has transitioned in a lot of ways, and of course there have been a lot of changes over the last century, but since that time in the the 1930s uh, and especially in the 1980s and 90s when 
neoliberalism and new public management became a, a way of managing public services and, and the whole public sector. And there were a lot of reforms in Denmark at that time. Um, and what the, the ideals at that point were focused much more on productivity and efficiency within the public sector. And again, managing people, managing citizens in a very blanket way, in a one size fits all sort of way was uh, par for the course. It was just the way things were done because it was uh, a very efficient solution. But as things have changed and what we're learning, I think, especially the pandemic now is really making it very, very clear that there's a complexity to populations. And, and of course, we can uh, separate people and silo different population groups. We can say those over 65, those who have a different ethnic origin, those who are women or men, however we want to bracket different people, um, there still remains within each of those groups a complexity that the government has a hard time managing. And so the Nordic countries have, have traditionally considered all citizens to be both equal, but also homogenous. And that's not the case anymore. Um, the general population that we have today is very, very diverse, very complex. And you know, fundamentally, I, I think that even those people who do have the same ethnic background, for example, they have very different health needs. And that's what we've seen with the elderly population, with these older groups who have different needs, different life circumstances. Um, and it's not it's not efficient to say we just need to protect all older people or we need to have visiting restrictions in long term care facilities, uh, nursing homes, because all older people are, are going to be at risk to the same degree. There's a proportionality that needs to be considered. And I think the Scandinavian uh, countries haven't been so good at, at recognizing that complexity and proportionality. Mm. Therese? Yeah, I, I fully agree. And I think it, it, Amy raised very important uh, uh, comments about the complexity of our societies today uh, compared to what they looked like uh, immediately immediately after the war. Uh, but uh, it's also important to raise that <laughs> the the uh, old people have been taking great burdens in in all Scandinavian countries. Perhaps um, the 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 burden. In, in Sweden, in Sweden has been shared more by the health pers- healthcare personnel and, and old people to a larger degree than it has in, in Norway and Denmark, because they have been the ones who have been isolated and have to be uh, careful during the whole pandemic in order not to to increase transmission or get infected themselves. Well, here in Norway and in Denmark, the society to a greater degree have 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 been sharing these burdens. So, and it's 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 very complex to uh, to to say what's what has been right or wrong here. Uh, but but uh, I think it's important just to say that as well. It's there, there's no one size fits all solution here. And I, I agree with that. Mm. And I mean, there are certainly lessons we can learn from the first now almost year of the pandemic. But at the same time, we probably won't know the full extent of 
of the effects of these different policies until this is all over. And that could be a long time from now. Uh, But that said, and just wrapping up here, what do you think will change in terms of, well, either in terms of of crisis preparedness and management, uh, not just for future pandemics, but for other future potential crises in these countries, uh, but also what might change in terms of how these governments view their populations? Uh, Amy, maybe you want to go first. Yeah, thanks, Indigo. Um, it's it's a really interesting question. Obviously, these are early days for, for the kind of analyses that we typically do. And, and hindsight is going to be 2020, haha, in so many ways when we look back on the year 2020. Um, so I think it, it's it's really one of these things I struggle with. You know, how do you do an analysis and how do you think about these problematics when you're in the midst of it yourself? And, uh, and it really is testing my reflexivity as a researcher in a lot of ways. But um, to think about the question looking forward, I think governments are going to have to recognize that um, the initial response could have been a lot more inclusive and individualized. But the, the question still remains, how do you protect these populations who are at the most risk? And in the early days of the pandemic, it was really difficult to tell um, who was at risk. Uh, we knew based on the epidemiological Im- information, we knew based on the virology, bio- virology reports, don't use that word, <laughs> <laughs> all, all of the virology experts uh, from, from the health authorities came out. And, and you know, what was frustrating for me as, as a citizen and as an individual was hearing them basically say, well, you know, the government is trying to say we're making decisions based on what the experts are recommending. But the experts were saying, well, we don't know anything yet. We're still learning. So who is really the expert in these situations? And I think um, what we're going to find out going forward is that we need to figure out who the experts are and we need to figure out who the risk populations are as best as possible, as soon as possible. And then we need to consider some of the more mitigating factors in terms of those risk populations. Well, is it just all, all people over a certain age? Is it those who are living alone? Uh, in this Corona project that I'm involved with, we're looking specifically at, at uh, the developing mental health issues that may or may not be happening here among the Danish population. And you know, one of our, our results that's come out so far is that young people seem to really be struggling with the lockdown and have a higher rate of loneliness than some other uh, members of the population. So if we think about older people locked down in a long-term care facility, well, perhaps they're not as lonely or as isolated as a young person. Um, so again, it's about this kind of uh, proportionality, but also the relativism of someone's personal situation and their own circumstances. Because I think that um, if we're talking about freedom and people's right to movement and family life and those types of of sort of health uh, and human rights, then everybody has a right to to live their lives uh, and, and do the things that they want to do. But they have to have a trust in the government. Mm. 
Therese, any final reflections? Yeah, uh, I, I totally agree with Amy. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about how we will uh, deem who the experts really are. And here is it's an interesting arena where Sweden differs a lot and have differed a lot uh, compared to the American CDC, uh, the European ECDC, uh, uh authorities who, who whose medical expertise been 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 really consistent with uh, with recommendations on on uh, on face masks and 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 uh, distancing and, and lockdowns and whatnot um and and trust in in uh, in these authorities is of course very important uh, as well but i also think that uh, the organization of each country's uh, institutions especially in terms of uh, uh, care of for old people uh, will in sweden at least um, uh, change a lot i hope because uh, it was clear that the communication between local authorities uh, and and the county councils who are responsible for for care of uh, old people and and the communication between the public health authority and uh, the swedish government it was it was bad they were not prepared and uh, a lot of old people in the nursing home didn't even have access to to general practitioners or or experts in in geriatrics uh, that is old um, uh, that is expertise in in old people's uh, health. Uh, they didn't even have access to that uh, before dying. Mm. Uh, so I think the the sub governmental structure in Sweden will will actually be a bit reformed uh, and preparedness for coming crises will be better. Mm. Well, thank you both for joining me today. And I am really looking forward to reading your article when it eventually comes with the, with the rest of your co-authors. Uh, so thank you so much. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trickhauger. Music by Martin Nuttall.